And good evening. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This program is produced by Vets for Vets. Our mission is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Now, recently we've been discussing bias, discrimination, and prejudice in the U.S. military. Whether it's racial discrimination, intolerance for members of the LGBT community, or sexual harassment and assault, all these have common outcomes. Incidents are often traumatizing and can result in PTSI and other psychological and physical injuries. To add insult to injury, service members who report this behavior in their proper chain of command are often retaliated against, unofficially of course. They may receive substandard performance evaluations, undesirable duty assignments, more discrimination, or worse yet, end up with bad paper discharges which prevent them from accessing the benefits they have earned. We also know that trauma and the lingering effects of PTSI impact self-identity, confidence, and self-esteem. And often veterans are reluctant to seek help for these conditions based on past experience, pride, or fear of impacting their employment opportunities or advancement. As a result, some turn to self-medication, which only accelerates a downward spiral. And sadly, we know that an average of 22 veterans decide to end their lives every day, and many of these for the reasons we've cited here. Tonight, we touch on another type of injustice. When a service member is injured or develops a condition which prevents them from performing their primary duty, he or she is typically discharged with a temporary disability status, which must be reaffirmed by the VA to receive benefits. The transition from the military to civilian world can be daunting under normal circumstances, but it's much worse if you're additionally burdened with a disability. The overarching questions many veterans ask themselves is, what is my purpose now? So why discharge someone who can be retained to do another type of task? The knee-jerk answer is, well, they can't do their jobs, right? Okay, so riddle me this. Why is it that if you have 15 years of active duty, sustain an injury or an affliction which prevents you from performing your primary MOS, the military will often retain you and make other accommodations that will allow you to continue to serve in some capacity. Now, Marty Klein of Woodstock, New York is blind. While serving in the U.S. Air Force, he developed a rare eye disease and was discharged from the service that he loved. He eventually lost his sight totally, and also lost his identity, self-esteem, confidence, his family, and much more. Well, one day he decided he had to find a way to survive. He felt strongly that he and others like him should have been given the opportunity to continue to serve their country. In order to raise public awareness of his situation, Marty decided to make a film and in the process began a grassroots movement called Why Can't We Serve? Like many vets, Marty found that in pursuing his goal, he was again accomplishing something meaningful, establishing a new identity and beginning to feel good about himself again. And as you will hear, he appears to be on the right track. Well, good morning, Marty, and welcome to Let's Talk Vets. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, what was your service branch, and when and where did you serve? 
Okay, I signed up April 27, 1967, in the Coral Gables, uh, Florida uh, area, and I served from 67 through 70. Uh, I was stationed, I went to Lackland Air Force Base for basic training, went up to Chinook Air Force Base in Illinois for weather school. I uh, became a weatherman and uh, was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base for the duration of my time in the service. And how long did you serve? Just three years because of the eye disease. Um, so, But I loved being a weatherman, and uh, it was one of my childhood dreams, and I uh, was very happy to go to weather school and uh, learn all about weather and participate as a weatherman. That's kind of an interesting um, MOS. That's not what we... AFSC, I should have said. So... As a weatherman in the Air Force, I mean, what? so what kind of stuff did you do, and what, what was your function in terms of total operations? Well, well, basically, uh, there were two parts of the job. One part was to uh, deal with these on the station. You know, we had all the weather maps coming in, and we had to rearrange them in the sections. Uh, and uh, every day we had to go out for four hours onto the base, the runway, Basically, check the weather out, <clears throat> let the pilots know what was going on, what the weather, what kind of weather they could expect, if it was going to be stormy or, or you know, decent weather to be flying. There was a lot of training going on at uh, Homestead Air Force Base, um, a lot of B-52s and F-94s and all that kind of, you know, B-5s, big, big planes. So I was going out to the runway you know, uh, every day that I was working, for, I was there for four hours, and I was in the station for four hours, and I, I enjoyed the job. Okay, and, and during your service, you contracted a, a rare disease which attacked your eyesight. Explain to us what happened. Well, I don't really know what happened. Uh, that's the part of the big confusion about how I lost my sight and why it happened, but um, I have some ideas, but basically... I went to an eye doctor and they said that there was something going on, uh, bilateral anterior uveitis, uh, glaucoma, and minimal but progressive cataracts. That was my first diagnosis, and I thought that was pretty weird. Um, you know, at that point in my life, I my vision was 20-20. I was spending hours, you know, looking up at the sky with uh, as a weatherman and also, in my off time, I was uh, very much into playing pocket billiards. I was a pool player. So I was using my eyes a lot, but I had no idea that, uh, you know, I would ever lose my vision. Um, one thing led to another, and I got discharged out of the military May 70, um, uh, TDRL, Temporary Disability Retirement List, because they didn't know what was going to happen, but they just knew that I was no longer uh, useful as a weatherman, so they were uh, discharging me um, with a medical discharge. And uh, uh, I guess within a couple of years, it just got worse, and uh, I ended up losing my vision mostly from glaucoma. You know, in a couple of years, there I was out of the military, blind, and didn't know which way to turn and which way was up. I'm assuming that uh, when you got out, you continued to see uh, the VA doctors for treatment? Yeah, I was going to see the VA doctors, and I actually tried to go to school on the GI Bill, but uh, as I was losing my sight, I, you know, the idea of learning, it was just 
so far in the background. What was fight, you know right in front of my face was the fact that I was losing my vision and I was basically uh, emotionally withdrawn and you know uh, scared and didn't know how to function with that. Uh, I was just trying to pretend to everybody that I you know had some sight, but it just kept getting worse and had to give up the car and driving and had to uh, do my best to get through life and honestly I didn't know how to live at all without sight and it was a very it was a period of seven years from 1970 to 1977 that I would say that was the hardest in my life because uh, it was like you know just hell so then one day you literally snapped and if I recall your words you said so you're blind you got to figure out how to deal with this and you took control back tell us about that moment yeah and and I guess like like uh things were leading up to that moment but I wasn't aware of it. I had uh was living in the Woodstock New York area. I joined a, a crisis intervention center. I found that I could actually help people by uh serving on the phone because they didn't know that I was blind that they just cared about somebody who was, you know, thinking about them when they would call up with crises and I realized that I could help people uh even though I was I had no vision so that was the beginning uh and then I was going through a difficult time with my first wife at the time and we were going through a separation and um uh then I moved into my own place for the first time in my life with my dog and my cat and I was pretty scared because I didn't know if I could live by myself well uh I I was able to and at that point things started turning around and I I realized that I was feeling sorry for myself because I was now a blind person but I think moving into the house with my dog and cat seeing I could take care of myself uh and then at one point just getting pissed off at myself for complaining so much my god I was still alive you know I had to figure out how to live but I was still alive, and as long as my brain was functioning and my body was working, I knew that there was a, an opportunity to do something here. So that was like a, a d- big decision in my life, yes. When about did that happen, Marty? I would say uh, 1977, 78, period, right in that time period. And I was involved, again, you know, with uh, other groups like, you know, self-healing groups. I was just doing my best reading, listening to some books on uh, tape that I was getting. Uh, I was just doing my best to try to uh, recreate my life as a person without sight. And I didn't know if I could, but I was certainly determined to do that. So it's kind of like the scene in the Christmas story where Ralphie loses it with the bully, huh? I guess something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, an average of 22 veterans a day take their own lives, and in some cases the vet loses his or her identity simply due to the sea change from military to the civilian culture. And if we add to that a physical or psychological injury or illness which prevents one from performing as they had prior, it's kind of like a double whammy. And both of these situations can and often do result in the loss of self-esteem. And that's kind of where you come in these days. What is the genesis of your movement? Why can't we serve? Okay. Uh, I, I think about, 
I can't tell you about maybe 20 years before I had the idea of the movie, I really felt like something was off with the military because there was no room for anybody who was disabled to serve. And there were I was finding a lot of people who with disabilities were feeling left out and would have really wanted to serve. Well, at some point, I guess about five years ago, somewhere I heard that 22 vets were taking their lives every day. And I just was so, it really hit me like a, a gut punch. I knew what I went through for seven years trying to figure out how to live a life without sight. I could have been at one of those statistics. I was very fortunate to have found some groups to help me, and I got my life together. And then here I, hearing about these vets taking their lives every day, I couldn't believe it. So I made a decision to try to make a film uh, to try to influence the public and then have the public influence the politicians and then the politicians to insist that the military make a change. Because I did believe at that point, as the movie states, that if you're injured or uh, uh, come up with a, a, a disability on the job in the military, you're basically forced out. You know, they say, thank you and see you later and you might get a disability check, but you have no purpose in life. And a lot of those people who get forced out, I think, are, are really, like what, what I went through for seven years was like a hell. And uh, I believe that some of those soldiers who were wounded or disabled in combat or on the job, uh, if they're still highly functioning, they should have an option to remain in the military and get reclassed to something, some job that they can do so they can still be part of the team and still have a purpose in their life. I believe if the military made that change, I believe that we would reduce the veteran suicide rate because I think a lot of those vets, if they had been able to stay in the military and had to have a chance of a career of dignity instead of being forced out, I just think it would give them a whole different outlook on life. And I know I've spoken to a couple of people who, like the guy in the movie, Ivan Castro, he said that rehab went really well. And it was because he knew that if he rehabbed, he would be able to come back and still serve. I've spoken to other people when their rehab is going slow, it's because they're being forced out and they don't know even what, where to go, what to do. And it's just, you know, you want to have... Uh, a positive outlook on on life, even if you have a disability. Ivan Castro had a positive outlook because he knew he was going back, and he did serve for 10 years. But that's uh, digressing a bit. I'll just come back to you here. Well, everybody has to have some self-esteem and personal dignity. I mean, there's something that makes you get up the next morning when you go to bed having known that you've done a good day's work or, or you know accomplished something whatever that might be. So take us on a journey to produce this film. It wasn't easy. It was, uh, wasn't cheap. And um, right. here you are deciding to produce a film you can't see. You probably didn't know much about making films at that point. And uh, so how did it go? You know, I've written three books and two screenplays. I've done a lot of things in my life uh, with computer, uh, with voice access on my computer. So I was feeling pretty capable and creative, but the idea of making a movie was like out of the box for me because I was blind and I just didn't want anything to stop me from doing what I thought would be useful. And I really believed that a movie 
would shake the, the country up enough to see the issue, and the issue being that these people who are being forced out, you know, should have the option to serve and could actually make the military stronger. So I decided to make the movie. I, I put up a couple of my own dollars in the beginning and uh, found a cinematographer to make a three-minute introduction to what I was trying to do. And we put that out as a, a GoFundMe thing, and we raised a, a little bit of money. And then I started actually working with another cinematographer on the movie. And, you know, then more money started coming in when people saw that I was really serious. You know, they originally thought it was a nice idea, this blind guy trying to make a movie. But it worked really well. I got all these people to interview for the movie. I did a lot of the interviews, and my, my cinematographer, Mike Nelson, did some of them. And what he did is every time he filmed a piece, at the end of that piece, he would come onto my house and put on my computer the audio version of the interview. I would spend hours going over that audio version and figuring out what different parts of the interview would be the most useful for the movie. So I was actually doing editing uh, as a blind person. And I got a bunch of these selects, they're called, these little moments of each interview together. And then I had to figure out ways to cluster them together to make a cohesive thought and have it you know, flow so it's not just the same guy five or six times in a row. It was an amazing process, and I obviously had a stretch to learn how to do this, but the, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I expanded. I know about making movies now and all the details, like like the music in the background. You know, I, I had to think about that. And the uh, fading out or jumping to another scene, I had to think about that. But basically, I... Did, the whole movie is my idea from beginning to middle to end. And Mike, who knew nothing about veteran stuff or, or blindness, uh, he was just a technical guy. But together we worked really well together. And, you know, I had a couple other people going over different parts of the movie to give it a go or not okay if it wasn't okay. It was hard work but a labor of love. And it was uh, I had a real purpose, so I was determined to get it not just a shoddy movie, but an excellently made movie out so that people would not just uh, respect the intention of the movie, but it would also be something that they would enjoy as a movie. Well, I would have to say mission accomplished on your part because it is terrific uh, film. Where can folks view this film? Is it up on Facebook or YouTube? You know, it's funny that you bring that up because for the last couple of years, we've been showing the movie at different places, and always I would have a Q&A afterwards, which is a very alive time, because once people see the movie, they're more open by it, and their questions uh, are deeper. I would have Bill Forte, Tony Forte, or Larry Winters, the three guys in the movie, along with me at different times doing the Q&As. But since the pandemic took over, uh, all the movie showings got canceled, understandably. But we're within two weeks of putting the whole movie up on YouTube, and it will be free to the public. And when it gets up there and we work out all the little glitches, I will send that link out to everybody. I can send it to you, and you could share it with your uh, community. I will put it out on Facebook, and I'll do my best to boost it so that as many people in the country who would like to see this movie would get a f chance to do that. 
Okay, will there be also an opportunity for um, those who can't view it in the traditional sense and have sight problems or um, other issues that prevent them from viewing it on YouTube to get the audio version? I have, you know, we have the movie. Actually, I showed the movie a couple of times to a blind community in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, and then last year in Rochester at the American Council of the Blind. Great turnout, people without sight, because we have an audio-described version. Uh, so the movie is still the visual movie, but with uh, a description of everything that's happening when the uh, person without sight there's no dialogue going on. They don't know what's happening. So I have that version. Right now, we don't have a plan to put it up on YouTube, but it's available. So if anybody without vision uh, or, or uh, deaf people, there's a hard of hearing too because we have uh, closed caption on the movie too. So uh, it's available here, and I can send the personal link to any organization who would like to see the movie, and listen to it with the audio described version. Well, would you include me in that because um, I definitely have some interest in that audio version. Sure. Okay, so you also wrote and performed a song, which has now become an anthem of the Why Can't We Serve movement. You had some professional help along the way. That must have been an interesting experience as well. Well, it was it was fun, and it was... Uh, you know, again, my learning and expanding, making a movie in the studio, I mean, a song in the studio was uh, uh, fascinating to watch all the little details, but I learned a lot. The movie, I think the song came out pretty good, and everybody who's heard it has really enjoyed it. And we have been promoting the song uh, on radio stations around the country on for Veterans Day, to just play it once a year on Veterans Day to let all your local communities know that uh, you know we can we don't have to give in to self pity, but we can you know go after what we want as veterans. So and it's actually not just for veterans; it's for anybody who's struggling with anything in life. You know, you can make the decision to just go after what you know what is going to make your life feel satisfied and fulfilled. So. Another, Marty, another question comes to mind, and that is with the film and the song and the viewings that you've sponsored around the country, have you any indication that the government or anybody is listening to this message? Doug, I, about two years ago, I showed the movie for the first time in Washington, D.C., uh, at the Paralyzed Veterans of America building, with Christopher Reed people there and uh, blind veterans and uh, a number of other uh, people involved with supporting veterans. And uh, I was pretty touched by a lot of the responses from people. A number of vets there said they, if they knew they could have reclassed and uh, stayed in the military, they would have done it in a minute. And they were really missing being part of the team. Uh, I could go deeper at some point with the stories, but they, it was very... The movie was powerful for them, and um, everybody got that, of course, we're capable. We may have a disability, but we can still function, and uh, a lot of them wanted to stay in the military. Um, now, that was in June. Uh, about six months later, nine months later, on, in March, March 5th of last year, whether it was from having seen the movie or not, I don't know, 
but the president uh, started uh, signed an initiative to form a task force with uh, Robert Wilkie in charge of it, and that task force was to specifically find ways to reduce the number of veteran suicides in our country. So I felt like even though they were not reaching out to me, maybe my movie, having been seen in D.C. by these people, maybe it had some positive influence. Well, March 5th of this year came and went, and the, they came out with some information about what they were trying to do to help reduce veteran suicides. Nobody was calling me to show the movie. I wanted to go to D.C. I wanted to talk to that task force. I wanted to show them the movie, uh, but I never got the opportunity. And I feel like that they, they missed the mark on that one because I think they would have learned a lot from the movie and they would have learned a lot from hearing my passion and my creative ideas about ways to help veterans. Well, and in fact, in your movie, there is a veteran um, interview that did continue to serve, but they're, so they, they, they can do that, but it's predicated upon years of service or some other conditions, right? Yep, continuing on active duty, co-ed, if you're in the military for 15 years or more and you come out with a disability and you can still function halfway decently, they will work with you uh, if you want to stay in. And uh, this guy lost his sight. He wanted to stay in badly, and they gave him an opportunity, and they gave him all the software he needed to function independently uh, at his job, and he stayed in for 10 years and did a completely responsible job. So obviously, it's, we're completely capable. We just need the support. Keeping people in the military with disabilities who can function, albeit with special accommodations or software or technology, is not an altruistic thing. I mean, it makes sense, and that's another point that's made in your movie, the amount of money that tax dollars that is spent on military people training, basic training, advanced training, all the money that goes into that, and a person comes up with a disability that could be accommodated, to me it's just a no-brainer to, to find a way to accommodate them and keep them in the military serving, well, I will say that there are two types of people with disabilities from the military. Uh, one type of them being completely lucid and clear, but they have the disability. I'm a perfect example. I'm blind, but I'm pretty conscious and clear. But there are other people who come back and, and they don't function as well because of the disability, because of the wounds in the combat, whatever. And they need personal help, and maybe they're not the ones to remain. So there'd have to be a board that would see who with the disability was still capable of functioning well enough to do a good job. Uh, I think that's the reality of the situation, to be fair. Well, and I also like the other part in the film where they interviewed the CEO of, I'm not sure what company, but he said we have, uh, when we hire people with disabilities, the, the job might say this task requires two hands or two arms, Right. But the uh, the applicant only has one hand or use of one hand or one arm. And we ask them the question, how, how can you show us how you could accomplish this task? Because people with disabilities spend a lot of time figuring out how to circumvent their disabilities and still get on with life. So Yes. Uh, his, uh, he was Walgreens, and he was a wonderful... Uh, piece of the movie because he showed that a lot of businesses and corporations around the world are already 
integrating people with disabilities, and they're very responsible uh, employees. Well, again, it looks like it's time for the government to catch up with the rest of the world. <laughs> yes, I, okay. I agree, and I, your lips to God's ears. All right, sir. So you wear many hats, survivor, crusader, filmmaker, director, veteran, songwriter, and performer, troubadour, and I think an, uh, an all-around good guy. So one might ask, is there anything you can't do? And when I asked you that question, you gave me some obvious answers. But the magic seems to be that you and other survivors have found a way to leverage your afflictions to transform yourselves and help others. Is that an accurate way to say that disability is not synonymous with inability? Right on. Uh, I, I think of two famous people. Uh, when uh, Einstein was quoted by saying, well, the only thing we need to do first is to accept our disability, and then we'll be able to transcend it. And Bob Marley, in one of his songs, said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. And I think that's the key piece here, Doug. Uh, I look back at my uh, struggles and my emancipation, I guess I'd say, and my freedom, I think that 90% is in your mind. And the problem is we're, we're all raised with this picture of if you're disabled, you're going to be a burden on society, you're going to be helpless, you're going to need a lot of people to help you. It's just not true anymore. You know, with the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990, uh, and then, uh, you know, with technology today, I mean, uh, it's amazing what, what technology is uh, opening up for people with disabilities. And there are thousands, thousands of people with disabilities doing incredible things on this planet. And most of the stereotype still holds because the media keeps holding on to, you know, if you're blind and you can walk and chew gum at the same time, they think you're an inspiration. Please, you know, let's get past that. So, closing thoughts... How can folks get involved or help with this movement? And how can people contact you? Well, we have a Why Can't We Serve uh, website, whycantweserve.com. Uh, there's a three-minute trailer on that. There's the, the, you can listen to the song. There's a lot of good articles on that. And there's a place where it says Contact Us. And if you'd like to uh, give us your email, uh, we can, we'll put you on a, a list, and we send out a newsletter every few months to let people know what's going on. Uh, we can put you on that list. We'd be happy to uh, have you know what's going on. And the ways that you can help is when we come up with the link for the YouTube version, uh, anybody who wants to help us can take that link and send it to as many people as you know who you think might be interested. That would be a great help. Also, we're always seeking donations because the more donations we get, the more we get a chance to promote the movie. Um, the other thing we have is the Why Can't We Serve Facebook page. You can go there. There's a lot of uh, uh, past uh, clips of the movies and the people we interviewed from after seeing the movie. Uh, a lot of good stuff on the Why Can't We Serve Facebook page. Those are two things that uh, uh, I think are useful. And also, uh, that Why Can't We Serve Facebook page, I'm always blogging every couple of weeks and putting stuff out there uh, to just you know, keep the uh, energy fresh and alive about trying to make a difference. Uh, and I, I believe that 
I wouldn't have done the movie if I didn't believe it was possible. And somebody once said, you're trying to get the military to make a change? Can you pick on something harder? <laughs> and, and basically, I didn't care. I don't know if I'm going to be successful if, if the military makes a change or not. But, you know, I had, had to go after doing what I felt in my heart was the right thing to do. And every day, today's another day. We're going to lose about 20, 22 vets today. And it just breaks my heart. It's an ongoing tragedy. And the way I say it in my website is, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Well put, well put. And to use a one of my favorite lines from a an old John Wayne movie, In Harm's Way, where Henry Fonda, who plays the admiral, says, we all know the military isn't wrong, but in this case, they were a little short on being right. Yeah. I like it. So thank you for taking the time to tell this story. It's inspirational, to say the least, and again illustrates what happens when ordinary folks do extraordinary things. Marty thank Klein. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for Let's Talk Vets here on WJFF. host Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Veteran homelessness continues to be a major issue now compounded due to the pandemic. There are many people and agencies, both public and private nonprofits, working every day to place vets who need assistance in suitable housing. While I never considered that finding an apartment or a house is only part of the solution. Many of these dwellings are unfurnished so the vet must provide everything else they and their family need to establish suitable quarters. What to do? Well, thankfully, there are folks like Paula Maritello, founder and CEO of My Brother Vinny, who are here to help. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's uh, something that, I, quite frankly, I didn't think about. We've interviewed West Cop. We've interviewed a number of the other organizations that try to place vets in either transitional, temporary, or permanent housing. And I never thought about the fact that once you get them in an apartment or a place to stay in a house or whatever, they need stuff. So, and yeah. that's, and that's what you do. So let's, let's, uh, take a 10,000 foot view of your organization, my brother Vinny. Okay. My brother Vinny is a hundred percent volunteer organization founded in the memory of my, my brother Vincent Maritello that passed away in 2000. My brother Vinny actually wasn't a veteran. Um, he was special needs. He had cerebral palsy. So when he passed away in 2000, I just started doing charity work in his memory. I was not a 501c3 at that point. I was just wanted to help people. And since my brother couldn't walk or talk, I had a passion for I felt people that I felt needed a voice. And in 2011, I was in a horrible car accident where I broke my pelvis I was left in a wheelchair for a month. So during the time when I was rehabbing from my accident, I, um, I happened to notice someone walking on the side of the road with no coat, and it was the winter. So I had told my boyfriend, when I'm able to walk again, can you please bring me into this adult home, and I want to see if they need any help. Because I had learned if you have mental health issues, you may not wear your coat in the winter because you may think 
you may have a mental health issue that's maybe making it hard for you to regulate your temperature. So at that point, my brother Vinny was starting to really form in motion. And I started doing things which are called joy giving events, where I would go into adult homes and just bring desserts and various things in honor of my brother. Still not a charity. And everybody's like, Paula, you've been helping people for years in honor of your brother. You should have a charity. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I just want to help people. And I always had this thing where I wanted to help people who had mental health issues, disabilities. So I took a class in college um, and how you have a 501c3 because I wanted to make sure I knew what I was getting into. And I formed my 501c3 for my brother Vinny in January 2013. In May of 2013, I was invited to an Armed Forces Day event in Verplank. And they were telling me that they're going to have the veterans come out of the Montrose VA. They're going to have them come out for the day. They're going to celebrate them for Armed Forces Day. So they're like, would you like to come and bring them dessert? So I'm like, absolutely. I would love to come and bring them cannolis or dessert. And at that point, I went and I started talking to the veterans and they were sharing stories about their life. And one veteran approached me and he was telling me that he's so excited. He's leaving the VA soon. He's like, you know, he went through his addiction issues and he's really got his life back in order. He was homeless. And he told me that he's like, I'm going to leave the VA soon and they're going to give me an apartment. So I have absolutely no furniture. So for me, I come from a really big family. And the first thing I said to him, and these were my words were, I'm Italian. I can ask one of my cousins for furniture. So I said to him, listen, when you're ready for your apartment, take my business card. I'm sure we can help you with what you need. I didn't realize that chance encounter with this veteran would totally change my life. It's, it's, it's the most, it was the most amazing occurrence for me. So he took my card, ran back to the VA, and told everybody that there's a woman who is given veterans furniture. I was called into the VA hospital for a meeting the week later in Montrose. They invited me in, and I was in the room of like 40 social workers. First of all, they told me that they heard I give veterans furniture, but I was like, absolutely not. I work a full-time job. I'm like, I'm like, I maybe help every once in a while, but they explained that there's a program called HUDVASH, um, which is Housing and Urban Development, Veterans Assisted Supportive Housing. So when veterans are chronically homeless and they're starting over their life, whether it's from PTSD, addiction, street homelessness, whatever leads them to going into the VA hospital or shelters, they need to go through the program and they're helped with with an apartment. Now, they're helped with an apartment, which is called a HUDVASH voucher and a housing voucher. So the veterans will pay 30% of the rent, and the federal government, with the help of the VA, will pay 70%. But there is absolutely nothing in place throughout the whole, whole entire country for furniture. And I said to them, I work a full-time job. I can help every once in a while, and we'll see how it goes. And as of June 2013, I will, as of tomorrow, be helping our 1,100 veteran free of charge. That's, that's absolutely amazing. And... You know, I never thought about it. I mean, I've interviewed the folks at West Cop. We've interviewed, uh, I interviewed the VA guys, a uh, mm-hmm. couple of them about homelessness and vets, and uh, never really touched on the subject of, okay, we got you an apartment now, what do you do? Never thought about it, right? So yeah. is it a full-time gig for you now, or are you still working? No, I still work I still work full-time, but it is a full-time gig. Oh, um, wow. it, it, it exploded. We average over 200 vets a year. We serve the whole entire Hudson Valley region, New York City, and we touch northern Jersey. That's amazing. Where do your operating funds come from? All right, so um, our operating funds come from an annual walkathon we have every year, general donations from the public, and personal funds. We do not have a budget that gets us through the whole entire year. We have 
veterans that need us every year. So in the beginning, when we started doing it, I took a pension loan. I took two 401k loans. The, the last three years, I'm able to get closer to fully getting through a year without hitting my own personal funds. There's nothing in place for us. We receive nothing from the government because my charity doesn't house the veterans. I don't employ the veterans. I'm not their peer support. So we fall on the weird criteria where we're not their, their peer supporter, but there's nothing in place for furniture. So I don't know how it went all these years where they were housing them. They didn't think about furniture as being a priority. That's a lot of work. You got some help, don't you? A hundred percent. How many folks do you have? I would say that I could probably maybe have like 60 to 70 regular solid volunteers. For my move, maybe like 30 people I can call at any time that would help me for, for moving veterans. Now, you yeah. have a facility or a warehouse, correct? Yes. So we, we operate out of Yorktown self-storage in Mohegan Lake. We have 15 storage units, and we pay 26 25 a month for a beautiful amount of storage. And all our units are set up like housewares, home goods, beds, dressers. You have to understand, we fully furnish the home free of charge. We even buy them their beds. And Westcop is the only agency around that will actually help pay for a mover to move our surplus. If not, then we have to do the job. So Westcop has really stepped up and helped us over the last few years. Now, and you mentioned you mentioned before how many vets that you um, help per year. What was that number again? Um, last year, we helped 242. So as of tomorrow, it's 1,100. We hit our 1,000 February 7th. And through the pandemic, we're still serving. So like for example, Bronx VA, Bronx VA will come up and pick up jobs for them. So we do the whole entire city. So we'll we'll distribute in the city ourselves. But the pandemic made it a little bit difficult for city travel. So tomorrow is the first time we're actually going into the city again to deliver. During the pandemic, though, I did not help them. I was direct shipping them beds. So because they were pushing veterans out of the shelters even faster. And how we get our furniture, when it first started, we were going around to the general public, you know, picking up furniture and filling our one storage unit, and then we exploded it over the years to 15. But I liquidate hotels for my surplus. So my furniture comes from hotel renovations throughout the Northeast. How does that work? Um, well, I have a friend who's a U.S. Marine, and he had saw my work uh, maybe four or five years ago, and he's like, listen, I'm a hotel renovator. He's like, I'm going to be in Long Island. Would you like to come out and take all the furniture? And I'm like, I don't know if I can take hotel furniture. I'm like, I, don't, I never even thought of that. He's like, I'll help you. You take whatever you want. So we started storing our furniture out in Long Island. Westie gave us an extra storage space. And that was a lot of work. It was crazy. So now I have it in sync how we do the work. Like we, Before, we would go out to the hotels ourselves, maybe take three U-Hauls, three 26-foot trucks, fill it up, bring all our surplus back to our warehouse. But as the years evolved, we still do that. But we also, I hire tractor trailers. And I have a tractor trailer man that I became friends with over the years that gives me really good deals on hauls. So he will drop the tractor trailer cab at a hotel for me, say in Jersey or Pennsylvania. They will load it overnight for me, the hotel for free, and bring the truck back to me. And then my guys, my volunteers unload it. Does any of this uh, furniture have to be repaired or? No, it's gorgeous. Hotel wow. furniture. Because hotels renovate every five or ten years, depending on the hotel chain, because there's a hotel standard for furniture. So say it's a residence in a Marriott. Um, we don't do motels. I'm pretty picky. <laughs> so I like hotels, um, the, the quality of a hotel furniture, and it's it's an excellent condition. There, there's some other stuff that you're doing, too. I, I see you have some advocacy efforts and some other stuff on your website. Tell us about that. Well, when my charity was formed, it really wasn't in a place or a position for me to fully help veterans. So I still keep what I call my joy-giving core events since Vinny was special needs. 
So we, um, our joy giving events would be hosting homeless shelter meals. So we host Thanksgiving, Christmas. We host um, the VA's Veterans Day parties, the VA's New Year's Eve parties. We host events that we feel will bring you joy in any circumstance. So you, you, you essentially cater a meal, right? We cater a meal. It's all donated. But we're catering meals for the adult home. We help the adult home. It's 140 people in that home. The, the VA, people, people don't realize the veterans in the VA hospital, on New Year's Eve, that's the one holiday of the year, they're not allowed, they're not allowed to go out because they're afraid that there's a chance that they can get into trouble with the alcohol and stuff like that. So we've been hosting the Veterans Day party for the VA. This will be our fourth year coming up. So looking forward, any plans to venture off into anything else or to refine or to expand this operation? Um, well, our charity, uh, the operation we have alone with the furniture is very specialized because throughout the whole country, there's really not the level of what we're doing with furniture for veterans. So I can only imagine throughout the whole country how this is because veterans are being housed in every state. So I, over the years, I have heard from other other states saying people would love to start chapters of our work, and we're getting there. You know, we're getting we're getting there to start look our closer regions to us. So I do see the potential of the work we have because you know, as you have food pantries and food banks throughout our country, what we do is people don't realize the level of the need we have. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the the missing part, right? So you can get your food, we can get your apartment, but what are you going to sit on? You know. <laughs> yeah, well, they're well, told, you know, maybe go to Salvation Army, maybe go here, but there. But can you imagine finally getting your life together? You were, you had addiction issues, you're starting over with really bad depression. And they're like, here's your apartment. But then you go in your home and you don't even have forks. So you don't even have a bed to sleep on. It's heartbreaking. People know about us, but you got to remember, this the city's gigantic. So if a social worker doesn't talk to the VA hospital or a shelter or they're a new social worker, maybe they haven't heard about us. So tomorrow we're helping a veteran who's been in this home since 2016 with his wife, his 18-year-old child, and all they have is air mattresses, and they have like one or two chairs. They have absolutely no furniture. So we are buying them all their beds. you got to understand, we buy them all these things with no budget. I don't have a budget. If my walkathon is not successful or we don't have anything, that walkathon doesn't even carry me through a year. When is that we walkathon? Have, well, our walkathon, it's usually the last Sunday in April, but with the pandemic, we didn't have it, so I moved it to Flag Day this year. It was actually it was beautiful. It was a virtual model, walk anywhere on Flag Day USA, and we had 43 teams and over 350 walkers throughout the country. So I actually think, though, the pandemic was a really hard adjustment for people. I felt for us that we were able to find a way to still gain support through our community because we have a really fantastic social media following. And I felt like people really came together for us. And we all walked in that day waving our flags and we zoomed in together. So we think our model might stay the same next year and not even go back to a normal park model. Hey, recently you got a big surprise from Mike Rowe. Tell us about that. That was really shocking. Um, in February, I was reached out to someone um, in a casting department. And they said to me, they're like, we, um, we're a small production company and we're doing um, a documentary on people that work with veterans. and." So I had a Skype with a producer and the producer said she loved, you know, our work and what we're doing. And she would get it back to me. She had to reach to her. She had to reach out to her higher ups, and the, the pandemic hit. So when the pandemic hit, we didn't expect, like, I didn't think anything. I think the whole world shuts down. So then on June 18th, I heard back from the producer and the casting and they wanted me to speak to them again to see how we were. And I said, we haven't stopped serving. Like our veterans need us even more so now. The pandemic didn't stop us. It just changed our way we're doing our work 
And I explained to them that we're still here. And if you ever want to work with us, we would love to work with you. So at that point, I still had no idea it was Mike Rose show until they rolled our van out. It was so exciting. They had it set up that I was going to go and maybe talk to one more producer pretty much to find out if we were going to be accepted for this documentary. And one of the biggest needs, one of our larger needs is a new van because we serve such a large area and it's so hard to, it's like doing triple work. You got to pick up your furniture, bring it back, load up. If we go in the Bronx or upstate different areas, we have to load as much as possible into a van and a minivan. And it's, even though, even though I can say we have 60 or 70 volunteers when we do moves on the weekends, we're only pulling out like maybe four to seven people because you don't want to have too many people with you. There's only so many seats you can sit in the car. And um, so when we got the van from Mike Rowe, it was the most exciting thing in the world because he, he's such an amazing human being and he does see how vital it is for regular Americans to go out and help the community. So I, I'm honored because there's probably over a million nonprofits in the country and they chose us and how we were chose is incredible. They have this page on Facebook, which I had no idea about called one, his show is called returning the favor and the page is called returning the favor effect. So people nominate nonprofits if they feel their work is worthy for recognition and support. So my charity has been nominated since 2018. And the producers said that people were, we were always on the radar because people kept nominating us. I had no idea. It was absolutely, it was amazing to me. And I'm very honored that someone would choose to even write about us because none of us knew about the, the page, none of my, my main volunteers. And I was able to track down the people through the page and I searched for our name and I was able to thank them all for it. And it was a miracle. If we didn't have the pandemic, Mike Rowe would have came to our storage in February because they said in February they wanted to work with us. And I didn't get to meet him in person other than on Zoom. His producers came down and they pretty much had me standing up talking to him on Zoom. And the old veterans we helped, some of our volunteers were there and they walked around the corner and they surprised me like a parade. And behind me, they lit red, white, and blue smoke bombs up in the air and they drove the van through it, I'm telling you. It was so absolutely amazing. And we've already since last Friday, we got the van on Friday the 3rd. We've already taken that on two pickup missions for surplus. And now tomorrow is our first big job at our regular van. And we're going to go to the Bronx tomorrow to serve a veteran and family. Drive carefully. <laughs> Thank you. Now we've, been, we've been driving carefully since 2013, so it's kind of hard thing. But we, I'm telling you, it's absolutely, we're so honored and thankful. So listen, this is fabulous work you're doing and, and just Thank another you. example of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, in this case for veterans. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, I would just like you know, I would love I'd like to thank you for taking your time to speak to me. It means so much that you're giving our organization the opportunity for a large audience to hear our work. I would love the people to follow um, my brother Vinny on Facebook, follow our Instagram, and um, look at our website, mybrothervinny.org, because we're 100 percent volunteer, and I think that if people get take the time to look into our work, they'll see the beauty of what we do and they'll understand the importance of how it is to help veterans in our community and how it is to help one another. I have one final question for you. How does your um, participation and membership in the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force help you, and how do you feel your membership helps them? I absolutely love Larry Newman and the Hudson Valley Task Force. It was an honor to even be asked to be part of it because we do the work and we're in the homes, but it was kind of like we were never, ever acknowledged. So when I went to my first meeting and I spoke to everybody, I told everybody I feel like um, – 
cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch. Like people know I'm there, but no one ever talks about us. And I was able to share what we do because one of our veterans, we helped mentioned us to Larry and then Larry invited me to a meeting. And I, I was able to meet so many amazing human beings that were helping veterans. And we work together and we work in sync. One of our volunteers, Scott Fisher, actually attends the meetings for me because I do have a full-time job. And, and during the pandemic, I've been trying to buzz in. And so Larry will come to me if they have a veteran that needs furniture. It's streamlined. I have that one area pretty much on lock. I can furnish anybody's home. I can furnish 20 homes a month. So it's not an issue for me. But then someone like Westcop, they will handle the core of their mental health issues. They will handle taking a homeless veteran off the street and giving them the support they need. And then you have another organization that will give them the recreation they need. So it's, we all coexist in a beautiful space and we try to maximize because we all have limited resources, what we're doing. It's been a valuable source for me because I'm finding out about folks like you and, and others. And we've, we've done about, I don't know, four or five interviews now as a result of um, attending those meetings and, and being part of that group. It's fantastic. And what's not to love about Larry? He's a handsome guy, right? Larry's a fantastic guy. <laughs> he's handsome too, but I have poor Kenny in my list. Larry, Larry's a wonderful human being, though. He's a, <laughs> he, he, he is, he, but he truly is a wonderful human being because people don't realize how much work goes into all those emails and how much caring goes into those things. Because you'll see him sending tons of emails, but I know for me, because I work 24-7, how much love goes into it, and I'm sure you know the same thing. So if somebody wants to write you a nice big fat check, how do we go about that? Um, you can go on our website, mybrothervinny.org. You could mail it to my brother Vinny at P.O. Box 644, Yorktown Heights, New York, 10598. And go on our website, even hit our YouTube channel and see the videos of what we do or look at our old news stories and to take the time to learn about us first. I think once you learn about us, you might be more prone to supporting us if you actually take the time to look at what we do because we don't have any staff. We are all volunteer we use every dollar for what we are. We don't sell our furniture. We give everything out. We don't even take a tip. And we're still able to pull this off without government support. There's no government support comes to us. Well, Paula, it's been fascinating. You do remarkable work, and thank you so much for what you do for veterans, and thank you for taking the time to be part of Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio. And thank you so very much for inviting me. Have a fantastic day. Be safe, and God bless. Our sincere thanks tonight to Marty Klein and Paula Maritello and to you for joining us once again. Let your friends and neighbors know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. Leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. We leave you tonight with a song written, produced, and performed by Marty Klein. He refers to this as an anthem for the Why Can't We Serve movement. However, I would suggest it's an anthem for all of us to remember when we're faced with a challenge that makes us consider giving up. Good night. I have the will to survive If I get what I need to stay alive and I don't indulge in feeling so deprived I gotta make a move to get myself satisfied Satisfied
I will survive if I get what I need to stay alive. 